Today, I'm going to tell you a story about a giant, a surgeon, and grave robbers. Oh my god. I'm Anna. I'm Alexandria. And this is The Tea and Stem. So I'm going to start by telling you about a man named John Hunter. This is the mid to late 18th century. John Hunter has become one of the most distinguished men in England. He's a scientist, surgeon, teacher, and collaborated with others on creating the smallpox vaccine. He was also one of the first surgeons to ever suggest inflammation was a bodily response, not an actual pathogen. And he completed the first recorded artificial insemination. Oh. So this is a man who is distinguished. He knows what he's talking about. He is a conquers the world kind of man. Ah, yes. So his career began in 1748, where at only 21 years old, he assisted his brother with human dissections at anatomy school. His brother was a teacher there, and soon enough, his brother even let him begin teaching his own classes at 21. It's all about who you know. Mm -hmm. Side note, but related to who John Hunter is as a human, his brother who taught him how to dissect humans was named William, and his brother's best friend, also named William... Um, have recently been accused of being responsible for deaths of many pregnant women in the mid-1800s because they were dissecting an increased number of pregnant women. Now, I do want to note that at this time, there was no x-rays. There was no MRIs. The only way to learn about anatomy and how the body worked was through dissection of dead bodies. Yeah. Um, at the time, donating your body to science wasn't a thing. It no. was something that... Um, Prisoners were subjected to because letting a body lie to rest was very important at the time. And it was expensive. Mm-hmm. Right. So it was considered an insult to be donated to science mm-hmm. instead of being laid to rest. But there was a lot of undug of women who were pregnant that, or just showed up dead that he happened to dissect. Mm-hmm. And so that was a part of what he was around when he was learning anatomy. Um, he was around at the same time that all this was happening, and so there's a very big likelihood that he kind of knew what his brother was doing. He did go to school himself, though. He wasn't just trained under his brother at Bartholomew's Hospital in Chelsea. And in 1756, so he's now 29, he was an assistant surgeon. In 1768, at 41, he became an actual surgeon. These are more normal ages for what we see nowadays. Yeah. And after that, after he became a surgeon, he spent some time in the British Army and then worked with a London dentist and did some of the first tooth transplants ever. And finally, in 1764, he started his own anatomy school. Full circle back. Obviously, he really likes anatomy. And Lots was a, to learn. He was also appointed to King George III's personal surgeon group. Oh, my. This man was everywhere. So um, he likes his career. It is. Um, his staff and some old writings described him as warm but impatient, readily provoked, and not easily soothed. Sounds like a big, heavy science guy who's not been told no a lot. He's rich <laughs> in England and has a lot of understanding behind him. Ah, oh, yes. So with all his fame and money and owning his own practice, he took advantage of this trade to study anatomy, which was really his passion. Again, like I said, at the time, bodies were not donated. They were punished um, as it was seen insulting. So, like many scholars, like John, this wasn't just him. They took to rave, grave robbing at night. But now he didn't take to grave robbing, right? Like, he would pay other people to rob the grave. Like, they would show up with, like, mm. a body in a barrel or something, and he would give them, like, a couple of pennies or whatever. From what I could find, it was a mixture. 
There's no way. He, how is he supposed to have time? Look at how distinguished he's in. He's like, what, older now in his 40s? He isn't going to get digging six feet deep? I don't know. But John Hunter specifically was the, because it was very mass known that doctors did this. It was kind of just turn a blind eye because they're learning about stuff and these people are already in the grave anyways. Yeah. Um, that the book Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was actually created off of Grave him, robbery. Off of him specifically, oh. John Hunter. So he was the inspiration for that book. Oh. Was the doctor saving lives by day and grave robbing, doing criminal activity at night. And then they just took it farther for the book to make it, you know, sci-fi. and Oh, of course it is. For the, the so, screen to be saved before yeah. the written word. So throughout his search for understanding anatomy, and not just of humans, but of everything, he expanded to plants, animals, and oddities. So over time, he collected different preparations of specimens of plants and animals. So this surgeon was known to have at least 14,000 preparations of over 500 species between humans, animals, and plants. He would have these things? Yeah. Like he, in jars? Yes. He in had like, his own museum as a part of his house. <laughs> this is so cool. Um, that museum's actually still standing. No. But it's now owned by um, like a nonprofit museum organization. Do you but know what state? It's in England. Oh. It's in London. We're not getting there anytime soon. So he had all these things. Um... There's not a lot of information online about specific things that he has in there other than, like, a few lists of, like, we have this and this. Come see the rest. Things to really bring people in to go to the museum, which yeah. I get. Not as many people go to museums nowadays. They I would to totally go to this. I love museums. But. <laughs> Are you saying that we get to go to England? Maybe we can plan that. Yes. But it was well known that he liked oddities. He collected um, babies still in the womb and put those in jars. Like, mm. all these different things, miniature humans, people with... Um, injuries, and he'd take those parts and put them on display. He didn't have a giant. Mm-hmm. And he wanted a giant. I don't think there's a jar big enough for that, Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> so, he really wanted a giant. Now in comes Charles Byrne. Oh, no. Charles, Charles Byrne, run. the London giant. Run, Charles, run. So in 1761, this is when, um, just for timeline purposes, well, John was the assistant surgeon, so before he really started his anatomy school. Um, Charles Byrne was born in Ireland. He came from a family with no notable abnormalities, not a lot known about his family, but they do know that his family was not giants um, or had any growth issues. Um, Charles suffered from what is now known as acromalgy, which is an excess in growth hormones. Uh So it causes um, tallness, long limbs, and it also causes a lot of like vision problems and other bodily problems because your body's overproducing all of its growth hormones. Sure. Um, So it is a genetic condition. At the time, this wasn't understood, though. And fun fact, the rumor was that he became a giant by his parents conceiving him on a haystack. And because of how high up they were when he was conceived, that's why he's tall. Well, that's what happened. Yeah. You know, you can't be rolling in the hay. Yeah. That's where that that term probably came from. It's crazy some of the stuff (laughs) they came up with as reasons, but Mm -hmm. they tried to make it reasoning. So according to measurements of his body now, he measured just over 7'7". Oh, wow. That's a tall guy. But some accounts say 8'2 to 8'4", but, you know, you can't really, you can't really trust, I mean, 7'7's. Seven and a half. I know that's almost eight feet, yeah. but I mean, seven, seven sounds more practical. I mean, there are basketball players that are seven-ish feet, yeah. right? I don't do sports, but I would assume so. I would assume so, too. 
But you know how people are. They're like, everything grows. The fish sure, gets sure. bigger and bigger the every time you tell the story. The fish gets bigger and bigger. Um, so in his late teens, he left home for Scotland and then to England to look for fame and fortune. A scout ended up finding him after hearing as he was traveling looking for abnormalities to kind of promote. Um, there was all this talk of, hey, there's a giant in our town. So he went and talked to Charles and was like, you are going to make a ton of money. Come with me. I'll make you famous. So Ooh. he did. Um, good for him, you know? I think that he took something that people were making fun of him for and he made a life out of it. Yeah, hello. So as he traveled, his name ended up preceding him. Rumors spread very quickly. And keep in mind, this is a time without social media, without news, like TV news. No, no, they had newspapers and, you know, uh, brochures and But you didn't have mass media in the way that you do now where it's quick. It mm-hmm. had to be someone found out about this, told someone else. They Got had on a train. printed in the news. Yeah. And then distribute it. It would have usually taken days to weeks for people to hear information, if yeah. ever, when you're in different countries and towns. Right. But they knew about him. This was spreading so quickly. Um, in 1821, at 21 years old, he arrived in London. So he's arriving in London at 21 years old to do entertaining stuff. Meanwhile... The physician at 21 was doing teaching autonomy classes that's or anatomy classes. Oh, just yeah. very different lifestyles. But I forgot all about the other guy. <laughs> I'm so interested in poor Charles. Um, so he arrived in London. He was entertaining, um, paying audience upon arrival. So they already knew about him. They were lining up to pay to see the giant. Um, he was noted in major newspapers and he was the talk of the town. Um he was noted as kind and gentle, and that really made it even more. People wanted to see the kind, gentle giant. The gentle giant. Oh, like Oakley. Yes. She's our great Dane. Um, so by mid-1782, so a couple months after he got to London, he was on the London stage show acting. So he got big fast, and he made a good name for himself. He was making money. However, at 22, so only a year later, in 1783... He was presented before the king and a popular doctor named Silas Neville, both who wrote that he stoops, which, as we know with tall people, they do tend to stoop. Right, they have to do mm-hmm. like this. Especially when you're talking growth hormones that cause joint pain and things like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. They noted that he's not well-shaped, his flesh is loose, and his appearance is far from wholesome, and he's an ill-bred beast. <gasps> they said that? Mm-hmm. So essentially, they're calling him ugly and denouncing his name. Now... Everyone was all the talk about him, but once the king was like, mm, he's nothing special, all of a sudden everyone oh. followed suit and nobody wanted to go see him anymore. See, there's trolls everywhere. Mm-hmm. People that want to say mean things just to bring you down. And yeah. I'm guessing the masses just kind of went with it. Yeah. Because what the king says. The king says, go. If he doesn't think it's cool, think about your major celebrities. They say, oh, I don't like the color orange. Everyone starts wearing not orange. Right? Exactly. Ew. Um, Ew. Ew. Yeah. So things took a turn quickly. He was losing showings. Doctors began to, instead of seeing him as a show to take their family to, started beginning to poke and prod at him more like an animal mm-hmm. and think of him as a scientific discovery. He was robbed oh. um, of most of his money and suffering from what they thought at the time was TB, but was actually a mixture of alcoholism and the side effects of his condition, where most people do tend to die in their mid-20s from this condition without mm. treatment. Um he fell ill and was dying by May of 1783. So at 22, 23, they don't specify what day he was born. Um, he was on his deathbed. 
He was not unaware of the fact that everyone was viewing him as a freak instead of as an exciting thing. He knew that all these doctors were looking at him more in a science way than in an entertainment or as a human way. He was quoted by friends to not mind people calling him freaks and doing things like that. As long as he was doing it on his own, he really wanted control of putting himself out there and control of what happened to his body. Okay. And so, which is good for him. However, as he got closer and closer to death, the talk of his body being exhumed and Dr. John's obsession with him grew. So it was widely known, they're both in London, that Dr. John really wanted a giant. Oh, that no. Dr. John tends to rob graves. Oh, no. And that Charles Bryan is a giant who's dying. Okay, so one thing I do know about this uh, time mm-hmm. era is that they, the people who had more money mm-hmm. than those who did not used to put these metal bars, like uh, crisscross bars, over their graves, deep into the ground, so grave robbers couldn't get their body out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wonder if that happened. So, again, remember, he lost most of his money. Oh my gosh, yeah. He got robbed. He got robbed. He got robbed. Um, Now, the robbing was a little bit his own fault. He started getting a little bit paranoid and decided to keep all his money in his pocket at all times. And so someone robbed him and took all the money. So, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. But also, that's the best place to watch it, I guess. There wasn't the FDIC insuring your money at the time. Right, To yeah, put it in yeah. a bank. Um, so, he knew. He knew Dr. Johns was obsessed with him. He knew about his giant museum with body parts and animal parts. He knew that he was a grave robber. Hmm. It was all the talk of the town. Everyone kind of knew. Dr. Johns was not the only one. There was a few surgeons at the time who really wanted Charles' body. But he was, like, the big guy. Okay, so now I'm wondering where you're going to go with this. Like, did he jump into somebody else's grave, right? Or did he say, okay, fine, highest bidder, mm-hmm. that you can have my body. Like, what, what did he do? I have to know. So, because he knew all this was happening, um, almost all of the town knew of all these obsessions. And were trying, all these doctors were getting to him, so he became very paranoid, as I would too. And he decided, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and make sure that my body remains my choice after I die. Okay. Good for you, bro. So he commissioned some friends and people that he knew and had a group bury his coffin that he bought to be fully lead, so it was heavy, to bury him in the ocean. So he was supposed to have his funeral on the ledge of the docks by the Mm -hmm. ocean in a lead casket and have people push him over in a private ceremony mm-hmm. and that was what he hoped would help him so in june 1783 he died and his friends buried him and then the next day they sent his coffin out to sea protected him from the surgeons who wanted him dissected that really happened so he went to sea but his, his coffin went to sea <laughs> oh, no four years later uh-huh dr john hunter presents the bones of a great giant to his museum Oh, come on. So now that a few, some time had passed, Hunter felt like it was appropriate to put his greatest collection up to view. Four so he, years? Four years. He knew that he'd get in trouble because there was so much talk about it, so he had to wait till all of the excitement and stuff died down. Okay, wait a minute, though. Nowadays, four years is like a flash in the pan. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no way that four years is like a long time. But perhaps back then, four years, it's been forgotten? Perhaps. I don't know what the 
social part of London was like back then. But he felt like it was an appropriate amount of time. So he nowadays, four years, I'd be like, hey, wasn't that guy here yesterday? Mm -hmm. So he had a friend over, and he told him, hey, dude. Guess see, what I got? You want to see my I giant? Got a giant. Keep in mind, in the meantime, for the last four years, he had been hiding a giant in his house. Where did he hide him? We'll get there. Oh, gosh. Okay. So, after some time has passed and he put up his greatest collection of you, he came out and told the true story of what happened to the giant. Okay. To Charles. John, a wealthy white surgeon, bribed a member of the party, which was one of Charles's friends, Judas. to give him access to the body after he was put in the lead casket but before it was pushed over so that no one would be able to look into it. They replaced his body with rocks in his entire nine-foot casket, enough rocks to replace the weight of what his body would be to trick the family and friends. Oh, that's terrible. He reported that he paid up to 500 pounds, which in that time compared to today is just under $90,000. Oh, my God. He paid the friend that much to do it. With his quote-unquote prize, he reported that he snuck it into his home and in his own home, he immediately chopped the quote-unquote Goliath into pieces, threw his, quote, chunks into a vat and boiled down the bones so that he could keep the skeleton. And then he reassembled the bones and hid the body in his house until four years later when he told a friend and went public. Are you kidding me? I did look up. And I don't know if you're wondering this or if our listeners are wondering this, but I wondered this because there was that little discrepancy of how tall the Charles actually was. Yeah. If boiling down bones could change the height, because you do base height usually off of, I think it's what, the femur bone? Uh, I, I don't know that answer. I, I think it's that. that. I believe so. I feel like when I've watched all the the Bones true crime show, but who knows how real that is. I know, right? I guess I would just lay them out on... <laughs> and just measure. <laughs> just measure. Um, and who knows which way they did it. It was uh-huh. a growth abnormality, so it could be that he's not proportional to if you measure just the femur. Well, like if you use true height. Right. You don't know. But um, no, boiling bones does not change the height. How big of a pot did he need? I don't know. And what did he do with all of the leftover... Carcass liquid. I know, but you have to remember, he has an anatomy school and a museum that houses plant and animal parts. He has means for disposal. He has means for disposal. And reasoning for needing to dispose of these And it would be totally normal for Mm -hmm. him to have a chunk of flesh in a trash Mm -hmm. bag. Well, I don't know if they had trash bags then, but yeah, it would be totally Mm -hmm. normal. It wouldn't be seen as weird at all. And when it comes to smells what are you doing, and scents, doctor? oh, just boiling some bones. Yeah. And when it comes to smell and scents, same thing. One, the eighteen hundreds didn't necessarily have the best hygiene, so you did get a lot of smells from your, mm. you know, waste receptacles. Right. And he also did have an anatomy school, so there's probably some funky smells coming from his his side Why of town. Why did he do that? Why didn't he just mummify it? How long does mummification take? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs. I don't know if there was a purpose, if it's just about he wanted to Just have the bones so nobody he, knows they could yeah. track it to who it was because they didn't have DNA testing mm-hmm. back then and figuring all that jazz. Or if he wanted to, you know, dissect it apart so he could see things beforehand. I don't know. I mean, I don't really hear of mummification being used outside what of, freak. you know, older times oh than God. 1800s. <laughs> Oh, what are you doing this weekend? Just boiling a body. Boiling a body. So. Want to come over for tea? 
Charles Boyle's body are still no. in the Hunterian Museum in London. Really? Okay, now I gotta go. Over the years, many people have come forward asking for the remains to be buried in the ocean as per Charles' last dying wish and will. That, I mean, come on. Mm-hmm. That was his wish. He didn't want it to be in his this guy's freaking yeah. house. It was his wish, and he spent his whole life being poked and prodded at. Let him go. And, you know, especially for the fact that at the time, this was considered a major disgrace to your afterlife, not being able to rest peacefully. Yeah, to be at rest, right. Um, and so, yeah, people have come forward. Um, many lawsuits, public defamation, and many other things against the museum have come out asking them to please remove the body and... Put it in the ocean in a coffin like he asked for. And? So, recently, in 2018-ish, there was a few different dates, but mm-hmm. recently, in the last five to ten years, the museum agreed to remove the body in accordance with everybody's wishes and requests. Where'd it go? In a storage unit in the museum. That's- Hidden from the public eye. So they so in another four years mm-hmm. we can put put it out again and hope that nobody remembers this yeah. happening. <laughs> just repeat it all. Let's just yeah. repeat the whole so, thing. On one side, I n- know people who have worked at museums, and they get like you don't want to get rid of the thing because you never know how, what it's going to be useful for in the future. Just like with the test, like we've talked about the, the Tasmanian, Tasmanian tiger, right. and how they use that DNA later on for scientific research. I had no idea they needed it. You never know, and once it's gone, it's gone forever. Mm-hmm. But on the same side, this was a person. This was a person, and his last request was not to be poked and prodded at, to be put at rest mm-hmm. in the ocean in his own lead coffin. Yep. And Do his friend asked. went against him. It wasn't even like a grave robber came out who was trying to make quick bugs. His friend Ooh. went against him. For 90K. Yeah. Yep. That's that's a Judah, all right. Um, so John Hunter, you know, stayed famous, got his museum. It's still living. Charles is still in the museum. I like the crazy wackadoodle doctor mm-hmm. and all his accomplishments and just crazy mm-hmm. museumness. Like, that's, that's incredible. But the giant story is very sad. It's really sad. And I think that it doesn't happen as much now, or maybe we just don't hear about it. But you hear about all these scientists from the 1800s and earlier that got really into science or medicine or technology, and they do all these crazy things because their passion turned into an obsession. Yeah, but we don't have any artifacts, and we're crazy. Like, any bits and pieces of stuff. Like, what have we saved from anything that we've done? Pens. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many pens. They just kind of go in my pockets. badges from all the meetings that we go to for our Christmas tree. Like, that's as weird and wacky as we get. But not, like, bits and pieces of, look at our discoveries. Ooh. I know. And, like, we don't have that mindset of being willing to take someone's final dying wish away from them. No. That's just crazy. No. And it's crazy that nobody seemed to really argue it. Like, he hid it for four years because he knew if he did it right away, he'd get, you know, a slap on the wrist. But afterwards, no one got mad at him. Money and power. Money, power, and going against... He's an influential person in that world. Mm -hmm. He had the means to do it. He had, you know, go ahead, try me. Try me if Mm -hmm. you want to try to sue me. You're not going to get anywhere. And going against a vulnerable population. Something that is out of the norm that people weren't viewing as another person, but as a thing to look at. Another topic for vulnerable Mm -hmm. population. Absolutely. Well, good story, Alexandria. Thank you guys for for chiming on in. And... Subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Next week.